Our scripture reading this morning comes from Colossians 1, verses 3 through 6. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. This is God's word. See so many of you this morning here as school kicks off and we get back into gear. We're finishing uh, what has been our series for this summer, looking at some of the strategic applications of our theology that shape our ministry as a church in the unique place and time that God has called us to minister to the city that we love, what you might call our core commitments or our theological vision. And this is the last week. Next week we will go back into uh, the book of Acts and spend the rest of the year there in the book of Acts. But um, I hope this has been an encouragement to you this summer. As many of you, we've received new members 10 weeks in a row, which is not something we've never even come close to doing before. So many new people around the church, many people moving into new places of leadership in the church. And so we thought it good to take some time to, you know, to kind of go back and talk about what would it look like if, if God were to come and we were really begin to see the things we've dreamed about happening begin to happen. And that's what we've been doing this summer. And so for the past few weeks, and finishing up this morning, we've been talking about uh, what, what we really ultimately are after and what we believe it's on God's heart to do in Winter Haven and in our county, and that is uh, to create a gospel movement. We've used this, used this word movement. Uh, our, our goal when we planted Redeemer eight years ago now was not just one new church in Winter Haven. We wanted to be, from the very beginning, a church that planted churches and initiated ministries all over the city and the county because the work before us that we see just in this little place that God has called us is, is too big for just one church, even a big church. We need, we need a movement. We need a movement of churches and ministries gospelizing the city in word and deed. We've been reading, if you're reading with us in our community Bible reading program, in the book of Nehemiah in our Old Testament reading. I love, I love the story. It actually was the first sermon series we did as a church. We did eight weeks in Nehemiah. And if you remember the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a Jewish exile in Susa, the capital city of Persia. And uh, he loved his hometown, Jerusalem. And one day... Uh, news reached him that Jerusalem was in trouble, and he began to weep, and then he began to pray, and then he began to plan, and eventually he asked the king for permission to go back to his hometown to help help fix things. Uh, there were, um, you know, it was is neat that he so he returned, he returned home. This man who had been sent away for a time uh, because his heart was so broken over the the spiritual and physical needs of his city that he just could not stand not being there and being a part of, of solutions and problem solving in the place that he loved. You know, it made me think there are a number of families in our church that aren't here this morning or in the next week or so because they're headed off to take kids, uh, dropping them off to college. Now, I wanted to say, take a moment, now most of them aren't here, but I'll say it anyway, but if you're a college kid, you know you're heading off in the next few years, I'd say to you, that story in Nehemiah made me think about you because I hope that you have a great four years at school. You know, many of you three and a half, and I would say not three. Make sure you get that fourth football season in in that fourth year. So three and a half is acceptable, four, whatever it's going to be for you. Not five, definitely not five. 
All the parents are like, amen. <laughs> Not five. Three and a half, four. I really hope, I really hope you have a great, great time. But I also hope, and I'm going to be praying, so forgive me if you need to, but I'm going to be praying you never quite get this place out of your system and that you dream one day about getting your degree and coming back home to help us love this city. Because there's more work to do here than we could ever accomplish in 10 generations. We are trying to initiate and sustain a multi-generational gospel movement that addresses both the spiritual and the physical needs of this place. And we believe, uh, you know, like Nehemiah, our hearts break at the brokenness of Winter Haven and Polk County, and we believe God's heart breaks too. That his heart breaks for the 80% of people who live here who have no church affiliation. That's 80,000 people in Winter Haven alone without the gospel and the hope the gospel brings. Uh, in a place where churches continue to prove unwilling to work together and get over their petty differences for the flourishing of the city, where a report in the paper just a few weeks ago, I don't know if you're even aware, but, but make sure you're praying that both Denison and Westwood Middle School were in danger of being closed by the state office because of just consistent low performance, where there are tensions between races and social classes that erupt into violence, where chronic joblessness and underemployment creates cycles of poverty that people can't escape from. How, how are we going to solve these problems? Well, part of the answer is, is I'm, not, I'm not sure. But I know, I know one part of the answer, and, and a huge part of the answer is that what we learn in the Scripture is that God has initiated a counter-revolution of grace called the kingdom of heaven. And the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. And by that I mean that in Jesus Christ, God has made possible, he's made it possible for us to be reconciled to himself. And in fixing what is broken in our relationship with him, he has also begun to fix all the other parts of our lives and our world that are broken as well. So when Christians talk about the gospel, uh, this is what they mean. And here's the little phrase that I would say to you this morning. When we talk about the gospel, we are referring to the possibilities of life with God in a fallen world. See, life with God in a fallen world creates all kinds of possibilities of what really could begin to happen in us, in our lives, in our families' lives, and in our city as we, as we get to know him and submit to him. And it's, it's, it's what we get a glimpse of in the book of Acts, which is why I'm so glad to be coming back to it for the fall. The book of Acts is the life that God makes possible through Jesus' death and resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And what you get a picture there of is a people supernaturally outfitted to bring God's grace and healing to the world. And it really is, the book of Acts is an extended story that makes sense of the image that we read in Ezekiel 47 of this river of life, this flood of healing waters coming out from the very presence, the temple of God, the place of his dwelling, uh, causing the parched ground everywhere it goes to blossom. And everywhere this river flows, it creates flourishing. That's what you see in Acts. And so you come to this, this uh, passage in Colossians chapter 1. And here's what we're going to do this morning. We want to look here at Colossians 1, and then we're going to kind of, we're going to kind of bring Colossians 1 into, into the book, of, kind of get us back into the flow of Acts as we head out in the next few weeks there. But if you look at verse 6 in Colossians 1, Paul talks about the gospel. And look at this phrase, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. That's really, I would say to you, that is a summary of the entire book of Acts. 
And so in Acts chapter 6, in the Jerusalem church, we read this last week, verse 7, you read that the, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Again, in Acts chapter 12, as the church uh, began to really be spread out and minister in all the places in the world that God was sending them, we read the word of God increased and multiplied. And then a third time in Acts 19, as the church began to take the mission really into the, into the, to the known parts of the world that were the, you know, the uttermost parts of the world, we read the word, of Lord, the word of the Lord continued to increase and it prevailed mightily. Think about it. The word of the Lord began to increase and it prevailed mightily. And so the lesson... The lesson from Colossians 1 and all those places that really mirror the language of Colossians 1 in the book of Acts is just this, that it is the nature of the gospel, which is the power of God, spiritual dynamite. It is the nature of the gospel to be continually breaking out, overflowing the banks like that river in Ezekiel 47. It is the nature of the gospel that it cannot be contained, that when the power of the gospel, not not re- irreligion, not religion, the gospel. When the power of the gospel meets a people who are committed to loving the city, not withdrawing, not assimilating, as we've been talking about this summer, but when the gospel meets a people committed to loving the city, the result is a movement. And if you want to give it another name, we're talking about revival. Now, I know that gets everybody nervous. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought this was a Presbyterian church, okay? I thought I'd be safe here. You want to give it another, if you want to give it another name, it really is the name revi- it's Revival. Acts is the story of the church in Revival. This, this snapshot here in Colossians 1 is an explanation of Revival. And so when we say we want a movement, we're really saying we want Revival. Just unashamedly, that's what we're saying. So we're talking about Revival, and when we talk about a movement, that's exactly what we're talking about. So let's look at, let's look at Colossians 1, and also we're going to go into the book of Acts so this is, really, this is really a sermon from both places. But when we're talking about revival, we want to we look at these three things this morning. And they're just the three points of the outline that I've given you in, in that insert in your worship folder. We want to talk first about the conditions for revival. Secondly, the mechanics of revival. And then thirdly, the result of the purpose of revival. So in, in casting a vision for revival this morning, we want to look at the when, the what, and the why. According to the scripture, the when, the what, and the why of revival this idea of movement or of the idea of revival, okay? So that's, that's what's before us this morning. So let's just start. Let's begin with this first point, expectantly waiting or the when, the conditions for revival. In other words, when does revival happen? Or here's the alternate question. Why do we seem to experience revival so seldom? And the answer is that the condition for revival is just what I've labeled it there, expectant waiting. Now I have in mind... The very beginning of, of Acts chapter 1, if you remember there, where Luke reports that Jesus' final instructions to the disciples uh, before this movement would even begin was that they, Acts 1-5, not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. The, this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which happens in Acts chapter 2. And so after the resurrection, the disciples returned to where they had been staying. Now listen to Luke's description here. You can turn if you want to Acts chapter 1, verse 14, but here's what Luke records. He says, with one accord, they devoted themselves to prayer. Jesus said, wait. God, the, the promise of the, the Father's coming, you have to wait on him. So they gather together with one accord, they devote themselves to prayer. Now Jesus tells them the Spirit would come, but they first had to wait. So before they started with the mission, they started to pray. And when they began to pray, you know the story, what happens? They began to pray. They devoted themselves to prayer, and then the power came. 
So revival, a movement, begins with expectant waiting. You know the verse in Isaiah 40. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall walk, excuse me, they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now what do those verses teach? Have you ever thought about that? What do those verses teach? They teach that my faintness and my lack of strength See, we have, to, we have to radically change our thinking, okay? You ready? My, my faintness and my lack of strength, according to Isaiah 40, is not an obstacle to God's work in my life. It's actually the opportunity for His work. That my faintness and my weakness is not an obstacle to what God wants to do. It's actually the opportunity. It's the doorway to actually seeing happen what He desires to happen. Now, just stop right there for a minute and think about that. Do you live? Do you live as if your faintness... And lack of strength is an obstacle or an opportunity for God to work. He gives power to the faint, Isaiah says. It doesn't say he gives power to the strong. So the place of strength is weakness. The only way, in other words, to really soar through life is to experience and learn to rely on a strength beyond your strength. And that only happens when you come to the end of your strength. And so the place of strength is weakness. That's the lesson. And the place of strength is weakness because... The gospel is the gospel of grace. So look at Colossians chapter 1 with me for just a minute. He says there in verses 5 and 6 of this, You have heard before in the word of truth the gospel since the day you heard it and understood, verse 6, the grace of God in truth. So the gospel is the truth about God's grace. Christianity is grace, which means it runs contrary to merit. In Christianity, you, you don't get what you deserve. You don't earn a wage. God doesn't love the, the God that we believe in. God doesn't love the lovely. He doesn't help those who help themselves. He loves the riffraff. He loves scalawags. He doesn't help those who help themselves. Grace means there's no condition. No, excuse me. Grace means there's no connection between your performance, good or bad, and how God feels about you whatsoever. In fact, it, it has nothing to do with you whatsoever. You know, merit is off the table, is salvation by grace, not by works, because it was based upon works for someone else. And because he fully satisfied the works of God on our behalf, we now live according to God's grace. So our, our relationship with God is based upon grace. And this is really such a countercultural, utterly radical idea that it's, it's even hard to wrap your head around. If, you, you, if you've been paying attention to the Olympics, I'm completely obsessed. I'll be honest, I'm exhausted this was the first week of school, but there's no way I was going to bed, you know, while the coverage was on NBC. So I've been up like until midnight, crying my eyes out, you know, and everybody went in and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wiped out. But if, you, um, if you've been paying attention, we had, we had a, it was funny, we were having a conversation the other day. All the pastors were talking about one an amazing testimony, the silver medalists, the guys that were in the synchro diving contest. Uh, I didn't see it live, but then we made fun of because we were all talking about, wasn't that great? And then we thought, wait a minute, we're all confessing that we watched synchronized diving, (laughs) okay, which was hilarious. Uh, But if you saw, I did not see the event, but if you saw uh, David um, Boudia, I think his name is, and Steele Johnson, very, very strong believers, and they, they interviewed them. And uh, it, was, it was absolutely amazing because typically, you know, you get the, I want to thank the good man, I want to thank the big, you know, the big man upstairs, you know, or something like that. And you just kind of go, I don't really even know what that means. And it's not very compelling. But these guys, they started talking to them and they said, you know, what's it been like for you? 
And the first guy, uh, David, David Badia, he said, you know, I feel like I've been in an identity crisis uh, all week long, and it's been so horrible because, you know, he says you're, you're up there and, and you're diving and they're giving you scores, and so you just start to, it's an identity crisis. And he said, but, you know, but the reality is I had to come back to the reality of um, my identity in Christ. And he, and, and he said, you know, that no matter how, what I do, no matter good or bad, it doesn't affect how God thinks about me or how I think about myself. And he said, and that really, you know, at the end of the day, there was all this pressure. And then I really had to remind myself of the truth. And he said, when I did that, the pressure was gone. It was just like this freeing experience. He said that, you know, it didn't matter what the scores were. Who I am, you know, he, he said, who I am has nothing to do with what I do. And, I, and, and you could just kind of see the reporter kind of do, do one of these things like, what are, you, what are you talking about? And then Twitter, of course, erupted with outrage and all, you know, like that, because it was just so confounding. And it really is, isn't it? How confounding is it for you to stand up and say, it's not my works, it's not my scores. The truth for every Christian is in Christ, I stick every landing. It doesn't matter. And that's what they were saying. You know, we realize, why are we, why are we under such pressure? It doesn't matter how we do. See, isn't that amazing? But that's what this word gospel means. And if that's true, then what matters most in Christianity is not what you're doing, but what you're not doing. You don't become a Christian when you get serious and start working for God. You become a Christian the moment you stop trying to work for him. I mean, that... That quote from John Piper that I go back to, it's been about a year since I've shared it with you again, but we need to probably look at it about every six months, where he says, God is not a mountain spring. Excuse me, God is a mountain spring. He's not a watering trough. A mountain spring is self-replenishing. It constantly overflows and supplies others, but a watering trough needs to be filled with a pump or a bucket brigade. And so he goes on, the way to please God is to come to him to get and not to give, to drink and not to water. He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is the kind of God who will be pleased with the one thing I have to offer, my need. He delights, not when we offer him our strength, but when we wait for his. See, the essence of Christianity is not getting to work. The essence of Christianity is taking a break to rest. It's not planning, devising, strategizing, organizing, managing. No, Isaiah 40 says the essence of what we're supposed to do and be is waiting. Those who wait... Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And therefore, we should not be surprised to find in Acts, the church, at the very first, because it's a movement of grace, at the very first, what are they doing? They're waiting. And this waiting it was not passivity. It was not resignation. That's important to mention, I think. This is not fatalism. It's faith. And it's why, if you look there, I, I, I entitled this expectant waiting. In other words, even when there's nothing I can do, there's, that doesn't mean there's nothing to be done. Right? Even though there's nothing I might, I might, there might be, might be nothing I can do, that doesn't mean there's nothing to be done. The disciples were not sitting around twiddling their thumbs. Luke tells us they devoted themselves to prayer. See, their work became prayer. And I think we're at a distinct disadvantage here. I mean, we're at a really big disadvantage. Martin Lloyd-Jones believed that there was so little power among Christians because our, the theology that, that dominates the church, whether intentionally or unintentionally, causes people to actually rely upon themselves. Because if you believe that salvation is what you do, or even if you believe that you're saved by faith, but the faith is something that comes from you and not a gift of God, then 
then it's just too easy for you to begin to either subconsciously or not begin to rely upon yourself, talk about yourself, make mention of all the great things you're doing for God and call attention to those things. But you add to this kind of underlying poor theological grid that we now have the technology that is such that we hardly ever have to wait. I mean, unlike previous generations, there is a solution to almost any problem we encounter. And the result is, from a theological standpoint and just practically in our lives, we never, we never, we hardly ever get to the place of weakness. And if we do, we feel so um, unaccustomed and so uncomfortable that we immediately do whatever we can to get ourselves out of it as fast as possible. But see, waiting, waiting is, waiting is to experience Weakness when it comes. Chaos. Just, just your life falling apart around you. Waiting is to experience that as an opportunity and not an obstacle. See, understanding the grace of God transforms your experience of weakness. You longer see it as a reason for embarrassment or shame. Feeling faint. Feeling faint doesn't cause you to despair. It's not a place of frustration. What happens? Think about this. Can you imagine this? What if it could be transformed into expectation? That, 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 um, that, that, that's exactly what Paul means when he says uh, in, in 2 Corinthians 12 that he boasted in his weakness. Now, it's always, has anybody else looked at that and thought, I, what, is he, what, what is he talking about? Like, what can that possibly mean? He knew, see, he knew that his weakness wasn't a liability. He knew that, in, in fact, it was the opposite. Not his weakness, but his strength. His strength was a liability. His weakness was the place where God was most likely to go to work, and that excited him. So when Paul began to experience his weakness, he didn't get discouraged. He actually got excited because he knew, oh, here, okay, finally, here's a place where, where God's about to do something. I mean, that, that is amazing to me to think about living that way. How would our lives be changed if we really, if we really positioned ourselves that way? And here's the thing. The condition for revival is just that. It's, it's weakness. You want spiritual power? You have to first wake up to your weakness. What matters, what matters is what you do in the times when you feel weak. Will you despair or will you pray? See, if you embrace your weakness and turn it into prayer, you've opened the door for revival. We, as a church, we are weaker at this moment uh, than maybe ever before. I feel more faint than I can recall feeling. Uh, we have bigger dreams and less people and less money in the bank than maybe ever in the history of our church. We've given away a bunch of people and a lot of money to church planning and other ministry projects. Now, what will we do with our weakness? Will we give in to despair? Or will we pray? And if we pray, if we faithfully wait upon the Lord, perhaps, perhaps he will rend the heavens and come down that the earth might shake at his presence. Because Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, from of old, no one has heard or perceived. Listen to this. No eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for you. God works for those who wait for him. And that's the condition. That's the condition of revival. But let's ask a second question. Well, what would it look like then if, if God were to rend the heavens and come down? What, what would happen? And so secondly, let's talk about the mechanics of, of revival the what of the movement. And let's look at Colossians a little bit closer here. So come to the Colossians passage, if you would. I mean, this is, this is what happened through the ministry of Paul and the other apostles in the book of Acts. Is exactly what we're describing here. And Paul says in Colossians 
that it's like this, verse 6. It's the gospel bearing fruit and growing. You see that? Bearing fruit and growing all over the world. The fruit of the gospel. Bearing fruit and then multiplying and growing and increasing until it covers the whole world. So the fruit of the gospel, the fruit the gospel is bearing is what he's already mentioned there. You've got to follow his logic. Excuse me, in his argument. He writes, back up uh, in verse 3, we think... We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. So there's the gospel fruit. You see that? Faith, love, hope. Now, in classical literature, these are called the theological virtues because, as C.S. Lewis put it, he said, only Christians know about them. They're supernatural. Unlike Aristotle's cardinal virtues, for example, which can be yours simply by temperament, there are some people who are just naturally more courageous than others, but faith, hope, and love are not natural. They're supernatural. So faith, faith meaning looking to God and not to yourself for the answers to the problems you're encountering, a supernatural ability to live from the top down and not the bottom up, to view your circumstances through the lens of your theology, not view God through the lens of your circumstances. So faith is this supernatural upward-looking orientation. Love being a supernatural outward-looking orientation, the supernatural ability to be thinking of others and not be thinking of yourself all the time and to put the needs of those around you ahead of your own needs and meet their needs and not worry so much about yourself. And hope. Hope is the supernatural forward-looking. It's a supernatural confidence in the assurance of the future of heaven, we're told here, that allows for you to live courageously in the presence. And what Paul says is, these three all go together. If you notice the way he puts it, faith energizes love, and faith and love both are made possible by hope. And so Paul's argument is all three of these are found in every Christian. But Paul in Colossians, look there, talks about the fruits of the gospel, faith, hope, and love not being just present, but here in verse 6 he says, but growing. In other words, increasing, overflowing, spilling out. And this is the idea that I really want to explore for a few minutes because it's the same in Acts. Over and over again, you come across the language I've already mentioned, right? He says, Acts 19.20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It's the same word. It's the same word there. So what is this idea we're, we're, being, we're being exposed to here? And I think it's something like this. See, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you have faith, love, and hope. Every Christian. You have a measure of faith, hope and, hope, and love that is just true of you. That's, and it's supernatural, and it's in you. But, but then there are times, and maybe you've experienced something like this. There are times when God chooses to work in your life in such a way that these things go beyond the range of your normal experience. They get intensified. You know, you might be, you might be struggling with faith, and then all of a sudden the clouds depart and it's sunshine, and all of your doubts are gone, all of your questions seem answered. Anybody had an experience like that? And you just think, man, that's great. Or maybe there's a relationship in your life that's just hard and you're discouraged and you're ready to give up and then maybe out of nowhere you're going about your business and you sense, you know, something's happened. You've, you've gone to the Bible, you know, you read the Bible or you had, you know, you came, something happened and all of a sudden there's this new, there's this new sense of energy to love that you didn't have before. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't matter that it's hard. You're suddenly bursting with love for this person that just five minutes ago it felt like you, you didn't want to have anything to do with. See, that's the increase. And this is, this is what we mean by revival. Think about the imagery and the assurance of pardon in John 7, that at your weakest, at your most faint, 
you and I, what the scripture says is that our very weakest point, we are not an empty cup. If you're a Christian, then you have the Holy Spirit, and if you have him, you have all of him. But what happens? What happens? Remember I talked about this a few months ago? What's the difference? What happens if you fill an empty cup? What is it then? It's full. But what happens? What happens if you fill an already full cup? It begins to overflow. And that's the imagery there in John chapter 7. You get, what happens if you fill an already full cup? See, you're, you have faith, hope, and love. What happens if there's an increase? What happens, you have the Spirit. What happens if there's an increase or a, or, or a filling that happens to something that's already full? Well, you get, John 7, you get rivers of living water spilling out. But here's the thing, Bob and I were talking about this a little while ago. What happens, what happens when your rivers of living water begins to converge with the streams of living water coming out of me? Then you get the Mississippi. And that's Ezekiel 47. The outpouring of God's transformative power and healing. So, so that's what we're talking about. But what is this experience really? In Acts, it's referred to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Over and over again, Acts 2, 4, 4, 31, 7, 55, 13, 52. This keeps happening. This keeps happening to the church over and over again as you go throughout the book of Acts. There's, you know, somebody's going about their business and then there's this powerful experience and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they're, they're supernaturally transformed. And Martin Lloyd-Jones has been really helpful to me. He says this, he says, be careful, this is not describing a, moving be- of, a, a movement beyond the truth to a separate spiritual experience. It is rather the moving to a deeper experience of the truth. It is not a spiritual experience at the expense of truth. It is the truth becoming experiential. Jonathan Edwards, we've, we've said this before, says there's a difference between knowing honey is sweet and tasting its sweetness, right? A knowing that goes beyond just knowing. That's what we're talking about. Thomas Goodwin, one of the great Puritan writers, talks about an experience of truth coming into a person's heart in such a way that it overpowers the soul, that it's a light beyond the ordinary light of faith. You've sang in Christ alone a thousand times before, and yet there's a moment where you sing the song and it says no guilt in life, no fear in death, and they aren't just words, something happens, you, you, it really starts to come in. Do you, know, do you know what I'm saying? And you can't choke the words out because it means something that it didn't mean before, because it, it became real in that moment in a powerful way to you. He tells a story that illustrates this. He says, I, I use this, so forgive, we're kind of rehashing some, but I, most of you haven't been here all summer anyway, so it doesn't matter. We can do this, right? That was a joke, sorry. I can use the same stuff over and over again all summer. Except we have the app, and you're probably listening on that, so it doesn't work. <laughs> he says one day he's watching a father and a son walking along the street, and they're talking and they're enjoying one another. It's obvious that the father... Loves his son very much, and then, but then he, he says, you know, then at one point the father bends down, he sweeps the son up into his arms, and he hugs him, and he begins to kiss him, and, and he, you know, overheard, telling him how much he loved him, and just, just, you know, really, really kind of, you know, fatherly affection, and then he, and then the little boy puts his arm around his father's neck, and squeezes his dad's neck, and then the father puts the little boy down again, and they keep on walking, and Thomas Goodwin asks the question, he says, was the little boy more a son in his father's arms than, when he, than, than in the moments when he was walking beside him? What's the answer? No, of course not. Legally, no difference. Uh, you know, objectively, no difference. But subjectively, subjectively big difference 
when he was in his father's arms, the boy was experiencing his father's love in a way that he didn't when he was just walking alongside of him. Listen, that's the increase. Faith, hope, and love increased. A supernatural coming home of the truth to the heart, like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, whose hearts began to burn with gospel truth. And that's, and that's, that's the essence of what we mean when we use this word revival. And, here, and, and I mean, you know, it, it's what we should all be praying for. It's a personal renewal. And Tim Keller just says revival is just when a bunch of people start to get renewed in the gospel at the same time. My streams of living water converging with your streams of living water create tributaries that result in the mighty Mississippi. But what is the result? Let's finish. What's the result then? If, this were, if God were to come and do just that, what is the result? And Paul makes mention of the gospel growing and bearing fruit, verse 6. And that fruit, uh, the expanse of that fruit, the scope of that fruit going into the whole world. And so the result is a movement. In other words, Paul says, get this. When what I'm describing begins to happen to you, it also begins to happen through you. When it starts to happen to you, it begins to happen through you because there's a purpose. In the book of Acts especially for Holy Spirit power, there is a why. There's a why in God, in God doing this in his church over and over again throughout the history of the church in these renewal movements that have happened. Uh, and this is the problem that I have with the way the word's used and why I'm kind of hesitant to even mention the word revival because revival's not for thrills. It's not for personal improvement. It's always for mission. In Acts, the Holy Spirit comes down and the result is always the same. Always. When the Spirit comes down, there's one thing that happens every single time. The result is always bold proclamation. So in Acts 2 at Pentecost, the Spirit comes down and Peter stands. The Spirit comes down. Peter stands to preach, and he preaches with unusual power and authority. Just a bit later in Acts 4, they are again filled with the Spirit. And listen to what Acts 4.31 says, and they continue to speak the word with boldness. Stephen, in Acts 6, the first martyr, was filled with the Spirit. We're told there at the very, right at the end. And as he's filled with the Spirit, he courageously speaks the words that cause the stones to start flying, and they kill him. And the result of revival is always the same. It's always bold gospel proclamation. Bold, you see that? Boldly proclaiming. Bold gospel proclamation. Well, a couple of things here as we finish. First, why boldness? Well, because what we're describing is a d- deep, direct, supernatural assurance of God's love and power that the Spirit gives. So to refer to Lloyd-Jones again, he says that spiritual power comes from certainty. Listen to what he says. He says, if we are uncertain, doubtful, and hesitant, our witness is going to be affected. If we are uncertain about the word of God as to whether it's true or not, and, or if we are uncertain about our relationship to him and the truth of his love for, for us, then we shall not be witnesses. Here's what he says. He says, certainty rather leads to power. It is when we are certain that we speak with authority and power. We do not merely suggest, we declare. Bold certainty is the great characteristic of the Christian church in every period of revival and reformation. Now, do you remember the description of the Christians at Pentecost <laughs> in Acts chapter 2? Do you remember what their response was? These people are drunk. That's what they said. Why? Well, if you've ever had experience with people who've had a little too much to drink, not that any of you have experienced it yourself, I'm sure, it probably had something to do with what happened to them, this, this joyful fearlessness that they begin to experience. People who've had too much to drink typically lack any inhibition. Uh, and these people in Acts 2, they were too happy to be afraid of anything or anyone. They didn't care what people thought about them. 
And this is, of course, what alcohol does to you if you drink enough of it. It takes away your inhibitions. I mean, a glass of wine is a good thing in most social settings because it loosens people who are otherwise pretty tightly wound up. You start to say things. You start to do things you're normally too afraid or too self-conscious to do. But in Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what's amazing is, is what Paul's saying is that the Holy Spirit works uh, in the same way that wine does. Except for this, for this thing, alcohol makes you brave. I said this a few weeks ago, but again, I, I'm, I, I feel pretty confident being able to go back to, to old material and make it new. I said, the difference is just this, alcohol, alcohol makes you brave by making you stupid, by making you less aware of reality. You're more courageous, you're lo- less self-conscious because, um, than usual because you're not thinking straight. But see, the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does the Holy Spirit gives you the same, the same courage, the same joy, but not by making you stupid. The Spirit works by, by make, not by making you less aware of reality, but actually by making you more aware of reality. You become more courageous, less self-conscious because you're finally thinking straight. You're, you're finally seeing things for how they really are. And the result is proclamation. What does that boldness lead to? It leads to proclamation. See, the mission of the church is this. It's bold proclamation. This is the reason the Spirit has come, to make us bold in telling other people about Jesus. I mean, one of our goals, we've said over and over again, is to see numerical growth, not for its own sake, but to be in a better position to do church planning and to engage the city we, you know, in the way that we feel God's called us to. So we've said 450 to 500 people on Sundays, and you see it in Acts. 3,000 people, 3,000 souls added on the day of Pentecost. The Lord adding daily to their number, we read, and I just want to tell you, you, you can grow a church by having the best programs. Having the best youth group in the city, it's a great way to grow a church. Having the best, you know, MOPS program or children's ministry program or the best worship band. You know, you can grow a church that way or you can grow a church through revival. Through an explosion of evangelism. Through a, a movement of widespread gospel sharing by people who have been freed from their fear and also their self-righteousness and who possess a new courage and a new love and desire for their friends to hear the, the truth of, of grace. And that's what, that's what you have in Acts, and that's what we're after too. So here's my question. Who, who in your life need, needs to hear the life-giving good news of the gospel? Students, as you go back to school tomorrow, I'm sorry, I'm praying for you. Trust me, it's one of those things when your parents used to spank you and say, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you, and you're like, yeah, right, let's trade places then, if that's really the case. It's, it's just, it's for, in many, many ways, you know, it's hard. It's hard on parents, too. Some of us, anyway. Uh, but as you go back to school and as you gear up for that, what if you thought about this? I wonder, I wonder, God is sending me to this place, to the lunch table that I'll settle at. I'm not going to just go where my friends are. Where, where are the people that need to hear the message of the good news of grace in Jesus Christ? Who is on your heart? We're going back to two services on September 11th. Who are you bringing with you on that day? I mean, don't leave. Don't, please, listen. Don't leave gospel proclamation to the preachers. God, help us. We are crazy, okay? I'm serious. We are. Y'all are lucky. I mean, we're okay. We're pretty normal. Just kidding. Don't leave it to the preachers. Because it's not just our calling, it's yours as well. Bold gospel proclamation that's the why now the temptation excuse me at this point is just to say this well i guess 
you know, yeah, I've not done a very good job. I'm going to do better. Let me just tell you, that's wrong. You don't need new resolve. You need revival. And so we've talked about the when and the what and the why of revival, but of course we've left out the how. And there's a reason for that. There is a when and there is a what and there is a why in talking about these things, but there is no how. I mean, this belongs to God alone. Jesus himself said, the wind blows wherever it wishes, and you can hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, and so it is with the Spirit. See, we need, here, here is the, here's the reality of our lives, every single one of us in the room, we need what we cannot ensure. We all need what we cannot ensure. It's something God must do or it won't be done. We need revival, but we can't produce it. If you're here and you're not, and you're, and you're not a Christian, you need... You need salvation. And so my job is to tell you, you need salvation. But the second thing I've got to say to you is the very thing you need, you can't do on your own. You need to be saved, but you can't do it. All of your doing does nothing. It's something God must do. And it's the same for you, Christian. You're not off the hook. You need revival, but you can't make it happen either. And this is the problem of Christianity. True Christianity is supernatural. It's sup- the supernatural can't be conjured or controlled. It must be given. And so here's my advice. Here's my advice to all of us this morning as we pray for ourselves, as you think about the brokenness that you're trying to go after in your own heart or in your family, as we think about what it means for us to be a church trying to ignite a movement. Here's my advice. Here's what we have to do. Take your desperation, take your wanting, take your thirst, your plea, your prayer, and bring it to God because that's what he wants. Not a plan, not a, not a, not a turnaround plan, not a strategy. All you need is nothing. And as long as you have something as long as you have something, some good work, some, some idea, some Excel spreadsheet on your computer, whatever the case might be that's going to be the solution to the problem you find yourself in, as long as you have something, the door to God's power remains shut. But when you truly have nothing, when you have nowhere else to go, when all you have left is a faint groan and utterance and plea that God in his mercy would come and work on your behalf, listen, That is the doorstep of renewal. So hear the scripture. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's the invitation this morning. And so let's pray as we come and sing. So Father, we do thank you for the gift of your grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That in our own strength, and we, are, we, we, we admit, I would say, we admit that we are faint. That, that we, we know very little of the soaring that, that is described by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 40. Uh, many of us are, we are limping, rather. We are crawling uh, through life overwhelmed and beaten down and discouraged or whatever, whatever the case might be. We are faint. And so we give thanks to you that, that you so very clearly expressed to us in your word that you give strength to those that are faint, that you give power to the weak, that in your grace you come to us in our moment of greatest need in the place where we have, it's when we have absolutely nothing is not the place of despair, it's the place of expectancy and hope because you are a mountain spring and you love you love to meet our need with your strength. That's what, what you love more than anything else. That's so amazing. We can barely wrap our minds around it. That you love more than anything else to be generous to us in our, the places of our, our deepest sin and guilt and need. 
and to meet us at those places with your grace. What, what other God is like that? And so we turn to you in our groaning and in our brokenness, in the pain of our circumstances, in our despair, but with a glimmer of hope. And we say, Spirit of the living God, come down upon us as well. Lord Jesus, thank you that in your death and resurrection and ascending to heaven, you have sent the Spirit. Would you send him now to us in these last moments in our service to increase our faith, to increase our love, to increase our hope that what you begin to do to us might also be done through us and that it might glorify you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Christian and non-Christian, I wonder if you know, do you know that, that he is the one that your heart hungers for? That the, every hunger of your heart is really a hunger for him. He's made you for himself. And so come to him. But you would say, oh, but I'm such a mess. I got good news. He loves messes. He loves, he loves moments like, like the baptism. Thank you guys for letting us share in that. He loves the moments like that way more than he loves the Christmas card moments where everybody is every, you know, exactly the way they should be. That's where real life is. So don't say, oh, I'm just too big a mess. No, no. There's no such thing as being too big a mess. He loves messes. Reach out your arms as I, as I give this benediction, as an, you know, as an indication of, oh, Lord, I'm reaching out uh, for what only you can give to me. And hear these words of his promise uh, that if you come to him in faith, if you drink, he can give you living water so that you'll never thirst again. He'll give you himself. That's the promise of these words. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.